metamodern swaps out soteriologies or salvation narratives of how this whole thing's going to work out and what's going to happen, swaps soteriologies out for storylines. And storylines are obviously emphasizing personal felt experience that can shift. One storyline runs and then ends and another storyline starts and then finishes. So these storylines can exist as a way of showing that there's no one end point and there's no necessarily one salvific moment. There's no removed, perfected, immaculate, unified oneness necessarily. I think if there's a I've written that if there's a metamodern savior, it's a savior who lives in an ordinary way, warts and all, kind of human with plenty of flaws and foibles and is accountable to life on earth as much as any kind of transcendent reality. Hello and welcome. My name is John Price. I'm the host of The Sacred Speaks. And today we'll be talking with Dr. Linda Seriello. And uh, it, it, a cool fact, fun fact, uh, the music that you're hearing, Linda was also involved in this project. And the, the singer, the, the Greg Denver, Linda is also involved in as a thinking partner in this um well, you'll, hear, you'll learn a lot about it, but metamodernism. And the website is What is Metamodern? M E T A M O D E R N dot com. Check that out when you can. So uh, I want to speak about Linda for a sec. I don't really have much to go into other than direct you to a couple of websites, but give you information on who Linda is. I will start there. Linda Seriello is a scholar of religions specializing in Asian religions in America, mystical experience, contemplative studies, and the critical theory of popular culture. She recently received her PhD in religion from Rice University and also has a master's degree in education from Antioch University, Seattle. Some of her favorite lecture topics include awe and wonder, the history of yoga, metamodern monsters, and the Gnostic attributes of transgressive comedy. Publications include Encoded Ambiguities, Embodied Ontologies, The Transformative Speech of Transgressive Female Figures in Gnosticism and Tantra in the European Journal of Esotericism, and chapters Toward a Metamodern Reading of Spiritual but Not Religious Mysticisms in Being Spiritual but Not Religious, Past, Present, and Futures, and The Big Bad and the Big Aha, Metamodern Monsters as Transformational Figures of Instability. In Holy Monsters, Sacred Grotesques, Monstrosity and Religion in Europe and the U.S. She is co-founder and editor with Greg Denver of the website What is Metamodern. Again, whatismetamodern.com. 
So the music today is from an album that came out in 2008. The album is titled, I Don't Know, I Think I Fell From The Sky. It's Greg Denver's work. Again, Linda worked on that. And the first song, the little clip you heard, is Big Me, Little Me. And the last song after our conversation, I'll play the full selection of Imaginary Friend. And the theme music is from Modern Nations. You can get them at modernnationsmusic.com. Any information on this podcast, check it out at thesacredspeaks.com. And of course, go to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, like it, pass it along. Really, the best way you can support it is to uh, is to pass it along. So uh, forward it to a couple of people you know if you like the, the conversations. Dig through the previous work. Uh, it's been... I think now a, a year, coming up on almost a year of releasing these. And uh, next, in a couple a couple weeks, we'll celebrate, or I will celebrate the, the 40th episode. So thanks for joining. Thanks for being here. And enjoy the conversation. And for now, we'll leave it there. Thanks. Okay, Linda. Uh... <laughs> Dis- I've been having flashbacks because um, dissertations are such a different brand of uh, of writing, and I've been reading your dissertation, and it has been uh, it's been wonderful. I'm I'm grateful for Thank the you. work. Yeah, um, we're going to talk about all kinds of crazy stuff that you don't tend to read about in dissertations, uh, ranging from uh, monsters and. Buddhism and duality and non-duality to Russell Brand and mysticism. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm excited to dive in. Um, you know, as we were talking, kind of, uh, I want to leave this open-ended, right? Uh, that's a lot of of ideas and so much work to get into that book you wrote, that dissertation. And, you know, as we've been kind of joking about personal experiences, I'm wondering if you want to begin there and talk about what got you interested in this material and if you'll let people listening know what it is you're... Maybe we start there, like, briefly, what is it that you've been looking at and why was that of interest? How's that? Right. Uh, And they go together really, um, (laughs) actually. So actually, if you don't mind, maybe I'll start with the the what got me into it. And I don't mind will, at all. You go wherever you want to go. I'm good. You're you're correct that uh, it's a lot of material, and um, the the dissertation that I wrote um, is on a lot of really big questions, and they tend to be meta questions. And uh, those are the questions that fascinated me from a really young age. To be honest, I was um, Twelve, I think, when I started querying my anybody who I thought would understand the question, I was sort of saying, "This isn't all there is, right? There's something else going on behind the scenes, isn't there? What's going on here? You know, just about reality in general." And I didn't, I didn't know how to frame my questions yet, but I, I didn't grow up in a religious tradition, so uh, I had nothing really to automatically hang these questions mm-hmm. on. Uh, so I read a lot, and I read a lot of um, popular metaphysics and the what some people would call Eastern religious or spiritual traditions. When did, when, um, what age which, did that start for you? 
I would say about age 13. <laughs> yeah. That's a <laughs> That's initiation into a uh, a seeking way of being pretty early, huh? Yeah, there there weren't too many of my peers who were interested in checking out that there might be a sort of, you know, hidden, you know, nature of reality that we didn't quite understand yet as thirteen year olds. <laughs> yeah, what what was that like? <laughs> that... There were a few kids who 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 hung in with me, and, wow. and we we were kind of talking about altered states of consciousness and exploring a little bit. Um, and then, you know, in college, I started reading some of the foundational texts like the Bhagavad Gita and Tao Te Ching and things that, um, to me, though, they weren't religious texts. They were statements about reality. And so it didn't occur to me to major in religion or take all that many religious studies classes, honestly, which I kicked myself later about. But um, hmm. I thought religion meant monotheism in some way that I didn't particularly relate to. And so um, I, but when I was in, uh, let's see, between freshman and sophomore years of college, I had um, what you might call a big opening, a big download, some sort of a spiritual experience of some sort that um, was formative pretty much for the rest of my life, I would say, without hyperbole. Um, and, you know, that's not uncommon for someone who's uh, had a mystical kind of experience to say, I've spent the rest of my life trying to figure out what happened that yeah. night or, um, you know, so it's not unusual. But um, what happened was uh, what, what was caused in me, I guess, was that there was a sudden wiping of my sense of self, um, complete complete wipe, like the motherboard was wiped. And um, there was only this immaculate kind of stillness. And um, nothing, just immaculate, quiet being or non-being. And uh, even with some background in alternative realities and uh, you know, things that I had read, nothing anticipated the, the experience of it. Um, so there was, it was kind of one part, as I look back on it, and I did eventually write about it, was one part, the experience itself, the noesis, the, the total rerouting of all my notions about reality. And then there was, there was that, and then there was the problem that that represented for the being who was still apparently inhabiting this body and this shape and form in a reality. So I had those two things kind of working in conversation for many, many years. And I'd say in hindsight, it did inform the rest of my life, not as if, not as in that was my main activity uh, from age 19 onward. I mean, I still finished college and I, you know, I did a major in uh, existential philosophy and literature, which oh, um, that's I going know. into the deep end. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm sure that it was directly related to this experience, sure. but I was trying to understand how modes of discourse really it came down to can open ordinary channels 
of understanding into some kind of a an experience or you know what is that aha basically is the the word i gave to it later was oh i was interested in the aha that moment of aha that moment of noesis if it's a like a small n noesis <laughs> that we might have when we're reading a text or listening to music or any any kind of text um but so i finished that degree and then i went on to um, get a master's in education and teach and have a career in teaching from kindergarten through young adult. Uh, so it's not that I was spending all my time on this, you know, this <laughs> experience, but in, it was percolating in the background. I will definitely will say that. Did you feel, uh, did, did you feel like you had kind of a double life or it was, did they all flow together or what, what was that like teaching? <laughs> It, it was a double life in some ways because mm. um, I didn't tell very many people about the experience. It was pretty protective of it, and the and I would get into why perhaps, but um, but when I did finally write about it, it was 2002, I think, and uh, I just tiptoed back into it as an exercise. Uh, in in could I give words to that experience? Because you know the the classic line is that the, that type of thing is ineffable. It, it literally can't be given words. Any words negate the experience in some way, or they just won't do justice. So it was this really, um, uh, you know, it took me 17 years to actually put the pen down and try to write it. Wow. Um, and then since I'm going on a kind of chronology um, in 2007, I took a course on non-duality because by this time I had discovered the concept of non-duality. I started following a lot of Western Advaita Vedanta teachers starting in the 90s. And I discovered the Buddhist concept of emptiness or shunyata as really closely related to what, it, what I remember feeling that that experience of mine at age 19 resembled so this there was a signature feeling like okay okay i think i'm getting close in here to something so i started to follow those teachings and eventually did end up going to india a number of times and and working with a um a teacher a couple of teachers but when i i it was always mixed with um scholarship and with um trying to grapple with it via words and the, the contradiction or the paradox of that was always just really on the forefront for me. So when I took a class on non-duality, I tried to really do an exegesis of that experience as I had written it in 2002, as I had experienced it in 1985, <laughs> you know, so there was this reflecting on reflecting on reflecting and uh, you see the meta thing happening sure. there. <laughs> So, and then when I got to Rice, uh, Rice was uh, 2010 that I started the PhD program there, having learned about Jeff Kripal's work, especially as it relates to the mystic as scholar, I was really thinking, okay, this, this is someplace I could go to be both of those things and not have to put one on the back burner or in the closet or, you know, hide one identity to let the other one come out. So at Rice, I started to gather the tools that you gather in the scholarly study of mysticism. And then I refined that essay, that exegesis, 
Um, and it covers material that swirls around and through. How do you understand a mystical experience? How do you give words to that experience? How do we interpret? Um, through which lenses do we interpret? And do we need some new lenses to interpret? So mm -hmm. that's the general territory of that dissertation. So I, I had to write this down. Um, you be the brakes here. What's what's going on with the hiding of an identity, especially around um, kind of mystical experience? Why do you think that's such a... Because we don't... I, you know, I said this on the last episode with, I was talking with Jeff actually. And, um, you know, as a psychotherapist, I end up hearing a lot of stories that people, I mean, people in my office will, will look over their shoulder as they're about to say something. And, you know, kind of, kind of the all, the all seeing eye is, is looming. And, um, and so I, I relate with that and what you're saying, you know, we, we all as a culture get really scared about sharing, I assume get really scared about sharing some of these personal and private um, experience, experiences, for, I guess, for fear of being ridiculed or kicked out of the tribe. And yet we all have them on some level. Yeah. And, and that, it is important to um, what I wrote because I had the same uh, questions about secrecy. Mm. I think on some level, most people would probably agree that having a, a mystical experience is one of the most singular personal things that can happen to you. You can't explain it. You can't really saddle up next to somebody else and say, oh yeah, I know what you mean like you can with a lot of other things in life. Right. There will be similarities, but um, what happens will be so specific um, and distinct and personal and, and shattering, you know, so that what you bring when you reveal a mystical experience is how you were shattered in a way. I mean, how much more vulnerable can you get in some sense? And then how you reconstruct yourself, if, if you reconstruct yourself, in what manner, um, in what manner you allow that experience to then, uh, whether you allow that experience to permeate your being from then on, uh, and then maybe you don't sound so sane to the rest of the world. <laughs> Or you bracket it off carefully so that you can go to the grocery store and make change and, and sound sane. Yeah. <laughs> but you kind of have to walk into different worlds or you have to bracket one off and say goodbye to it. There's a lot of neg personal negotiating and existential negotiating going on there, I think, that um, that makes it a very singular enterprise and, and one that it makes sense why mystics keep their cards close to their chest. But... I was really interested to understand why in the last, let's say about 10, 15 years, or so, let's say the turn of the century, to be tidy about it, uh, the turn of the millennium, why more people are, uh, seem to be much more free to speak about their very personal mystical experiences than heretofore. And I, I talk about you know, my evidence for uh, what, seems to be a trend to 
be more outward and more extroverted about those experiences. And I was fascinated by that because my own sense that I really did need to keep my cards close to my chest for a while in life. I, I wouldn't have had the conversation I'm having with you 15 years ago. I don't think you would have asked me. I don't think it would have even been possible. Yeah. Culturally. I, okay, yeah. No, that's an important note, that last part, culturally possible. Because so, we're because it really we're seeing an eruption of even the term mystical, um, or, or as as we'll get into spiritual, um, these are yes. pretty ubiquitous terms. And and I think one of the things I really enjoyed about your dissertation is you you used your razor like intellect to parse all these ideas apart. And I can just tell you took such effort with painstaking detail to really isolate what these words mean and why we mean them the way we do and why that we say them now and why didn't we say them then and so I, maybe we can just jump into that or or i also feel compelled um because i wrote i, I read some of that paper that you're talking about and you you really did put some good imagery to that experience of because uh, because I do think a lot of Westerners kind of struggle around the idea of emptiness, and I think that the way you described it was was appreciated. Do do you mind talking a little bit about that before we dive into some of the the details? No, I don't mind. Um, you might have to give me some prompts because I don't have it in front of me. Um, no, I, I think what I what I was really responding to is the descriptions that you were using about kind of words that you were listening to and the the person that you were inter interacting with and the way your emotions were, were coming out and um, how you were experiencing these. I mean, there's nothing more every day and in the moment than, you know, what I'm, what I'm feeling right now and to feel separate or apart from that or that that's meaningless or nothingness is a pretty radical proposition. It is. It is because, it, and it makes you aware that in in our daily life, every instant has a meaning behind it. Every instant, including I've got to get up and pee, or <laughs> has is loaded with meanings behind it, and right. and and consequences that uh, roll out from there. And in my uh, the frame that I was in in this experience. Um, like I said, it was it was wiped of any meaning. So there was uh, nothing to hang anything on. I I called the piece nothing to base a plan upon, because I was utterly stymied about existence. How does one how does one determine to do anything when there's no meaning behind it? So the no meaning space wasn't any kind of negative. Uh, there was nothing, you know, sort of sad or uh, there was no emotion because emotions were wiped. Also, there was no, there was just absolute nothing in place of where you would load, you would preload. Usually, we preload our experiences with emotions, and then we load them as we're going along while we're talking. We conclude things about what we feel while we're talking mm -hmm. but there was 
not, nothing stuck. I could, I could do that or I could have a moment of fear because it felt like an absolute um, bereft sense of isolation. But that didn't have any meaning either. So there's nothing bad, good, sad, you know, nothing stuck is the, the best way I can say it. So when you don't have anything sticking, you have nothing really guiding your impulses, then what do you have? That's why I was uh, calling it nothing to base a plan upon. There's nothing to tell me what the next moment should be or could be for any entity that I thought that I was because I don't have that entity um, identity <laughs> anymore. Z zero reference point whatsoever. <laughs> Zero reference. <laughs> if I, but yes, I'm I'm paying attention to my experience right now, and I tend to like, I like the idea of altered states, and I like the idea of kind of mystical experience, you know. But I notice that there's a part of me that is, I fight against that idea, you know, to to have like meaning. What do you mean without meaning? Like you know, so I notice. I mean, the way I would conceptualize that is this kind of egoic clinging, you know, to, uh, to this cohesive sense or idea of who I am and what I'm doing in this world. And so to challenge the su supremacy of that ideal is a pretty earth shattering, um, reality. But what you're saying is that it was not earth shattering. You were, you were, you were, um, freely able to be in that moment without any kind of, uh, question about desirability or undesirability. Yes, let's put it, it was shattering, mm. but not in a way that had a meaning overlaid on it to say, <laughs> oh, bad. Yeah. It had, it, it was, oh my God, without this is bad. Let's put it. Wow. So, yeah. Just being in the moment of, oh my God, you know, what is this? But I do write about how that other side of me was saying, okay, there's still a body here. Mm, there must be some entity like I remember that entity Linda clearly and I remember that she's in college and she's supposed to go back to college in the fall and supposedly study things and uh you know learn and take a place <laughs> in society and all this was like so patently absurd again <laughs> this complete wipe of reality that it was you know it was just conundrum with the capital c <laughs> you're, the, you're, capital. The, you're the uh you're the perfect existential philosophy student in this moment <laughs> yeah so so the dilemma of what what do you do about this mystical experience that is something i pursued studying because whenever i and i read a lot of mystical accounts mm -hmm. lots and lots um, when you say that mystical accounts are you talking about you went back in history or is there a resource that you had access to where people are reporting their mystical experiences yes both of those i mean oh, i read cool. as as scholars of mysticism do you know you read the medieval mystics or you may read the um whatever your tradition is of uh read a lot there aren't a lot of mystical accounts that you find so much in asian religions that i found interesting um you don't find people tending to write this is what happened to me because mm -hmm. um 
quote unquote experiences like that are embedded in the culture. So it's not so noteworthy just to, you know, say something general about that fact. But I was casting about looking for types of mystical experiences and people's accounts of them. So I guess it's important to say in my frame, my way of looking at it, there's an experience, qua experience, something that occurred. And then there are accounts of experiences. There's what happened. And then there's what I made of what happened. Yeah. The narrative or narrativizations, because I, I really do feel like the narrativizing of the experience is 50%, 80% of the whole experience. I mean, are we ever dealing with an experience qua experience? I don't actually think so. I think we're always dealing with narratives of experience. And then we analyze the narratives and say what we think happened. And that's a, that some people would say, well, that's a constructivist um, way of looking, but I think it's actually even a little bit more radical than that. How so? In the sense that I'm not canceling out an experience by any, definitely not, especially after what happened in my own uh, case, I couldn't <clears throat> cancel the experience by saying, oh, you've just narrated it. It's not, it's not a just, mm -hmm, it's that mm -hmm. that, that is the created that is the creation of the experience in some way is the narrativizing of it so i don't mean to yeah i don't mean to discount or far from it i think you get that by now yes <laughs> i wouldn't i couldn't discount a mystical experience um that would be discounting my own but i also can't say that anything anything that a mystic reports is the same thing as the thing that happened there's a gap there, but that doesn't mean it isn't creative and created in the moment of discursively construing that experience. And that's a lot of what I explore in my dissertation as well by talking about secondhand mysticism. Which, yeah, but even before we go into that, which I think is such a cool concept, um, let's let's define mystic mysticism because you 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 did work through that and um because i in <laughs> and let's let's be frank let's let's not try to define it um universally let's just define it for our conversation <laughs> what, what do we mean when we say mystic or mystical mystic or mystical yeah um i defined mystic in a really simple sense as a person who purports to have had a mystical experience mm -hmm. uh which we might then define as a noetic encounter an encounter with reality or the nature of reality that destabilizes one's previous structures of meaning or identity so something radically destabilizing um and a mystic might be someone who in their own perception um, is susceptible to this kind of radical decentering, life-altering visions um, or realizations. So that's pretty simple. <clears throat> Someone who has experience, and then I define what the character of the experience might be. So I'm I'm doing it uh, very wide on purpose. Yes, and which is why I think um, 
trauma is so often associated with these. You know, I I love that term destabilizing because, and I when I went through a, a you know destabilizing experience, I I went in I, I found psychology. I went into a, I started my degree in psychology, and the professor that I um, in my first class I was a, a tiny bit older than the other students, and so she kind of wanted to figure out what I was all about. She took me outside after the class and I started weeping, you know, and I was saying like, this is how I think, like, I love, I love this stuff. And I talked about this kind of destabilizing experience in my life. And she said, you know, what's interesting about those experiences is we have this wall or structure built in our lives and something happens that, that makes it explode and it gets scattered everywhere. And then what we can do is we then begin to grab the bricks and kind of recenter and build it in a different way if we need to. And I certainly experienced that because I think, you know, so, some of it just happened. Some of it was constructed by, quote, me. But um, those traumas help us question the very fabric of reality that we stand on. Who am I? What am I doing here? Why am I here? How do I operate in the world? And then all of a sudden, that shit's just completely blown up. And you you actually have to do the work of asking those questions again and not just taking it in like, oh, I'm this guy, or I, you know, I, I took in that script, or I took in that cultural way of being. But now it's like, mm-hmm. no, you, you gotta struggle with things like your um, your identity and your sexuality and your kind of way of being in the world and these deep religious questions and and uh, begin to come to know things in a new way. But you were you were young, man, at 19. That's um... <laughs> how'd you go through that yeah, afterwards? Trauma. I think I think trauma. Yeah. I think what you just described does sound like the the territory of the mystic. And there's a way that, you know, some people might find it to be too overgeneral, but I think that um, there's a way that it, it makes sense to to label those experiences, those traumatic psychological experiences um, as and and the aftermath as a kind of a mystical um, encounter with ourself. It's not a given that everyone's going to do that work, but as yeah. you say, if 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 you if the platform that you've built your identity on and your life on and your meanings on gets ripped out from under you by any means could be a traumatic one it could be a biological one mm-hmm. um psychological one etc uh then then it's there are some similarities to how you have to then look around and say well what what was that platform made of um what why was i standing on that platform exactly yeah how'd i get there how'd i get there there was a plat i I didn't even realize there was a platform there (laughs) right (laughs) i thought it was just a fish i didn't know about water (laughs) yeah okay good well then we got it um so now we come to this idea of second, you know, if you can have a mystical experience, a secondhand experience. So I, I'll tell you what, why don't you just start free associating, right? Like, so what we're talking about is how an individual, you, makes sense of this radically destabilizing experience that calls into question 
very fundamental assumptions about identity and reality and the way of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, the answer is that everybody does it differently. You know, there's, there's actually nothing that can really be said to say, this is how it's done. Um, but it will be some combination of reconstructing an identity and allowing for some some wa- wiggle room or wobble room, let's put it that way, um, to say uh, I'm willing to be with paradox to some, to some extent kind of gives you a continued access to that mystical space, or it could. Um, and I think that, so here I'm going to leap into part of the, the secondhand mysticism part leap. that you mentioned. Yeah, I, I think what I wanted to look at was both uh, the question of why we're seeing so much more mystical content in uh, popular culture, television shows, film. It's been observed by a number of different people that the amount of content that we're seeing now that has to do with either the paranormal or the supernatural, um, life after death, um, those types of things is very high. Some have said even 25% or a third of what you see on TV is covering these types of themes. It's really high. Yeah. yeah. But I guess I know that, but just hearing it like that has me scratch my head. Like well, that is really high. Right. I know. And that's why I included, uh, a survey that I saw that was taken in 2014 of the top shows television shows across all age ranges. And the top five shows were um, not specifically shows you would automatically think that's got to do with the supernatural or mysticism or something, but um, but they do, in fact. So you had uh, The Walking Dead, hmm. uh, Game of Thrones, sure. NCIS, Big Bang Theory, and uh, American Horror Story. So right away, a couple of those, you go, oh, yeah, that's fantasy. That's, and it has a, game has a lot of supernatural elements to it. Right. American Horror Story, obviously. Um, but NCIS, that one I had to stumble and think, well, okay, well, maybe that's the exception here. Actually, not really. I didn't, I'm not a, a watcher of the show in particular, but I, I looked at a list of the titles of episodes and you've got, dozens that are related to either devils or demons or angels or you know other supernatural kind of mythological archetypal uh you know images to draw on um not to mention the content of the shows themselves anyway the the television shows um and the films you know, I just started to ask myself, okay, this is happening at the same moment that the spiritual but not religious is coming to be more of a, a known concept and a name that people recognize without even having to think. Often people will say, oh, yeah, I'm spiritual but not religious. And so we have these mystical television shows, And um, I was putting these things together, or I was trying to see what the connection might be. And... Uh, I'm floating an idea in my dissertation that says um, there's a kind of way that these shows help people move across the borders of the ordinary and the non-ordinary 
give them a, a sort of a what's a good word for it um, conveyance <laughs> convey them uh, between different realities and uh, blur or reconfigure the boundaries of what ordinary reality might be so they're kind of this performance of a uh, liminality and liminality for me is is an important state in terms of understanding the spiritual but not religious identity um, because I think there's a felt reality by someone who calls him or herself spiritual but not religious. There's a felt reality behind that. Um, Do you, you mean just the in, like the in betweenness? I mean, I think it's the first time we've seen a moniker, a religious or spiritual moniker, hold the have a but not in it, right? Can you think of another one? I think the not is very. Um, it's significant to say what I'm going to call myself is a this, but not that. And, mm. and they both are important in my naming of my experience. It's kind of one of the ways that I analyze the, the name spiritual, but not religious and how it works. I think it's generative of possibility and uh, it's generative of a sense that this is all up to me. That's the other thing it does. It says, this is, my definition if i say i am spiritual but not religious i'm not really saying anybody else has the same um definition or means the same thing when they say it so up to that point anybody who says i'm a catholic or i'm a buddhist or even i'm a new age practitioner all of those contain an underlying sense of qualities, what the, what it means, what it doesn't mean, until we get to spiritual but not religious. It's a fast-growing marker, and, uh, and it's a very different one. It's doing different cultural work for us. To designate oneself spiritual but not religious is a different kind of designation. And tying that back to secondhand mysticism, um, I think that what I was trying to do was show that secondhand mysticisms are like a product of the blurring of boundaries of the real and the unreal and kind of the undoing of this bifurcated state. It's loosening these hard, fast definitions. Well, which, yeah, I mean, I immediately think about, you know, are you a believer? That question, are you a believer? And how often that's like, okay, I can categorize you, you know? And I, I really like what you're doing there with spiritual but not religious playing around with just simply the the idea of you know what it brings up for me though is that there's a there's a, a a group that can at least identify around the idea that they are going to the thing they share in common is a desire to push up against organized structures and and, and it, it and in fact to use the earlier term to destabilize the structures that are in place and that yeah. that kind of shared shared identity around you know okay well you know whatever we're we're going to push up against this shit and see what see what comes out of it exactly the identity has to do with pushing up against now mind you i think every religion that's new is doing that is it specifically comes <clears throat> to the fore because it's pushing against the boundaries of another religion right. and you can track that back historically sure. Uh, without much difficulty whatsoever. But the idea that the, the 
the very identity has to do with it is different. Yeah. The very name for the identity, the moniker, is a pushback, is something different. And that was super interesting to try to look at what does that say about, um, particularly I looked at millennials and the younger generation that some call the plurals and how their um, dislocating and disrupting of identities is quite a bit more native to these younger generations than it ever has been before. And so I looked at that through the lens of popular culture, through um, social media, through the sort of sharing economy, as it's called now, that everybody gets to chime in, everybody gets to have a say. And, you know, on a daily basis, a person may have identities located on numerous different platforms that they're playing with, they're deconstructing and they're changing and shifting. My Facebook identity is different from my Instagram identity, is different mm -hmm. from my blog. And then I, on, on my blog, I talk about things that I would never talk about in my scholarship. What do you say about the, the, the pathologizing of that? You know, because I can just hear kind of traditional or older generations that are like, oh my God, no sense of self, no identity, no, no idea who they are, too much fluidity. What are you seeing yeah. in that criticism? Thank you. I have a, uh, quite a lot to say about that. <laughs> you kind of to get ready for that one. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I've always been kind of a youth advocate. And so I'm never willing to take at face value a criticism that, you know, oh, kids these days, they're all X, whatever it is. So, yes, the, the millennials, the plurals, and I'll also say the spiritual but not religious all have some in common or they share or they create together this idea of fluid identity narratives and these public ontologies, as I call them, that you can create and uncreate yourself in a very public sense. And this gets back to the thing we were talking about that mystical experiences are more readily shared these days. Um, and because they see a lot of mystical and spiritual phenomena within secular setting, it's more normalized that those, those realities are more normalized. But your question was, was how that appears to other people and maybe gets stereotyped as flakiness or, um, you yeah, know, I mean, mine was I'm, uh, to use a stronger, I mean, pathologize, mm -hmm. you know, that because Maybe that's my part of my worldview. I, I push up against that all the time. The idea of our, um, I mean, I, I push up against pathology, um, and you know, so, something about just defining somebody like that really um, uh, bothers me. And yeah, so I see that in the collective, and of course, it comes from a a, a different generation that looks kind of to locate it somewhere looks down in in more ways than one looks down upon a younger generation and and whatever it is they're working through they don't they don't ask them questions about their experiences they just say well that's that's fucking crazy and let's get rid of it or make it yeah. bad yeah <laughs> exactly that's it bothers me as well that um i think there's so much going on there that we can we can look at it as uh, some sort of a failure to grasp reality, but then I think what's really going on there is that we're not grasping the reality. <laughs> we're, we're 
just not aware of the reality that they're living in in the same way that they are. So I think that millennials um, really found the, the, the grand narratives that they were given wanting. They found that, uh, and, and I talk in my dissertation about why it's important to distinguish the new age from the, S, the spiritual but not religious or SBNR. Um, because the, the new age kind of handed over, I think a lot of millennials' parents came from the new age. We should make that point too. So I think the millennials became disenchanted with these narratives that try to encapsulate too much in a one-size-fits-all kind of way. And so this speaks to the idea that a person from another generation can look down and say, that's not the way it's done. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, the, the millennials and the plurals in the Western world took in the lesson that they should follow their bliss and they should change the world. But then when they try to do that by, you know, flipping the lens or changing their, changing the lens through which they're looking, um, looking systemically at what the problems are, um, they're told they're not doing it right because they're not towing the line, you know? So they've got a really crazy mixed message going on. Yeah. And so no wonder, I think the, um, the operative word is liminality, that they're standing in different spaces trying to figure out what's what. Here's the difference, though, I believe, is that they have more tools for standing in more than one space. And this is how it re related to mysticism. But I think that the millennials will um, engage a lot of perspectives that are different from the generations that came before them. And they exhibit increased... Um, inclusivism and pluralism. Um, I look at that through studies on fandom cultures, for example. Um, it seems a little bit strange, but because of social media and the ability for everybody to have a seat at the table, um, everybody can pipe in and, and express and experience each other's realities. Uh, there's a sense that everybody's reality is on is sort of it's sort of an egalitarianism in some sense. So for me, when I was looking at how do I understand what's going on with this emergence of this spiritual but not religious, um, these mystical experiences that are happening more in everyday life in secular settings, um, I was also looking at a kind of aesthetic or cultural sensibility that seems to me occurred, uh, not just me, um, somewhere around the turn of the millennium though, that there was a, an attempt to understand what comes after postmodernism. And so the term post-postmodernism will be thrown out there, but I, I think there's a sense that that was an unsatisfactory term. <laughs> what does it mean? It doesn't say anything in particular, right? So there's a small group of scholars that uh, began to try to put some contour to what came after postmodernism. And why that is important is to say, uh, or just in short, I would say it's important because um, what we saw through postmodernism was a, a kind of ironic distancing in a general broad brushstroke sense. Postmodernism brought us the ability to um, reflect reflexivity but also to distance oneself and a kind of almost tacit understanding that you couldn't really make a sincere statement without 
sort of ironically laughing at the end to show that you're one of the cool kids in a sense. <laughs> Until a certain point, it shifted. <laughs> I love this um, this framing of postmodernism. <laughs> right now, postmodernism is uh, is like a I don't know. I just hear in a lot of the popular public conversation, it, it's used as this kind of uh, you know damn postmodernists. You know the, the like it's it's an evil. Um, it's being vilified right now, and I think that's short sighted as well. But right, yeah. So I think one of the things that the new age gave as a kind of inheritance was um, a polarization of the light and the dark and um, positive, positive thinking versus negative thinking, um, transcendent versus imminent. You know, transcendence is a, a higher uh, attainment of something higher. And uh, that would mean, of course, by extension, that you've left your earthly body or your earthly concerns, things like that. So the postmodern comes along and is in a way a backlash to these ideas and a, a, a kind of backlash to the idea that there's this lopsidedly light engagement with self and culture um, and brought in some more of the, the dark, the, the snark, <laughs> postmodern mm -hmm. snark, postmodern irony. The condition of being post, you know, was in a way saying no to modernism, postmodernism. So it's like a signal of a, a detachment from an old meaning structure, but it didn't offer a real replacement with another graspable meaning structure. Because um, that's that's the criticism usually that it's that it's de so so oriented to deconstructionism that it it doesn't provide the kind of the the idea is that and this is just. You know, it, it, hardcore postmodernists are just ripping everything to shreds without no redemption. Right. That's the criticism. And right. I mean, I would say, and I, and I make the same criticism, although I, I will say I'm doing it in broad brushstrokes to make a point that there's a lack of existential ground uh, with postmodernism is a bit is short sighted itself. Um, you know, it postmodernism also gives birth to uh you know what we now have as identity politics but before that had a you know somewhat negative tinge to it um the idea that we should um consider the viewpoints of the oppressed um feminism you know post-colonialism all these things come out of postmodern theory by way of saying um let's not broad brush let's not I keep using broad brush Let's not brush past uh, and make a sort of universalist whole out of everything. But that does a disservice to the particulars. That's a really, really important viewpoint that came out of postmodernism. Well, and, and that looking at um, sources of power. Sources of power, right? And 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 really questioning, like, okay, where follow the money? Where's where's the money? Where's the status? Where's the energy take us? And who, who is this benefiting? Right. And w right. W wouldn't you say that there's even a uh, just a, a genuine healthy skepticism that comes along with that particular worldview? 
I do think there's a healthy skepticism. Um, so it shouldn't be uh, sort of dismissed, but the concerns about postmodernism that I'm highlighting have to do with a sort of unstated taboo against expressing earnest feelings or sentiments. So that ironic rejoinder would always have to accompany a sincere belief. Um, somehow we weren't allowed under postmodernism to have uh, uncomplicated truths, especially in the academy. There was a kind of, um, if, if you don't agree that there's quote, nothing outside the text and that very um, mm -hmm. stereotypic deconstruction platform, platform of deconstruction, um, then you look like you're not a serious scholar. You haven't drawn your line in the sand um, as a social constructionist or something like that. So I would say it's quite clear that scholarship is still recovering from postmodernism. Um, but the place I'm shining my light is in more in popular culture and popular understandings of people who are really trying for some sort of a reclamation, reclaiming of that which went underground under postmodernism, which is again, affect, sincerity, emotion, personal agency to some extent in meaning making that you can stand and say something is meaningful. The metamodern shift which is being theorized as a way to talk about what post-postmodernism is, though it's kind of a, a more descriptive synonym than post-postmodernism, is, in my reading of it, about um, showing that it's not all about either rejecting or accepting the grand theories of modernism, rejecting or accepting the relativism of postmodernism. Um, but making space for both. So this is what's new. This is what's different. It's a different way of engaging one's reflexive reading of one's own cultural situation is to say, oh, I'm informed by, certainly by grand narratives of my own. I wanna save the world. I want to see all people treated fairly, et cetera. But I also understand maybe there's no absolute truth a la postmodernism. So what do I do with those two things? And this has given rise to something that's variously called a new uh, aesthetic, a new cultural sensibility, um, or an episteme, as I call it, using the Foucauldian structure. Mm -hmm. I use episteme because I want metamodernism to be comparable to postmodernism, modernism before it, and premodernism before that. So it's not so much a sort of social program or something that has a, um, a telos or a, you know, where we should end up as a culture um, or a politics or an ethics necessarily, but it's an overarching sense that something has shifted. Um, to make room epistemically for different kinds of truths, truths with small t's, <laughs> to nestle next to each other. So how we know what we know. How we know what we know and by what means do we know what we know. And to put, and to put um, 
episteme, it, it, it is a mode by which we can know what we know. Is that a... Uh, it's a mode or, hmm, let's see. One way of defining the epistemes that I kind of liked was um, the epistemological unconscious of an era. <laughs> I took that actually from, I believe, from the Wikipedia article on episteme. Awesome. The epistemological unconscious of an era. How... How did we contrive to decide what's going to constitute the truth or knowledge in a particular era? And, and what, what, because what, what, that definition, I mean, what you're saying is that what forces are at work beneath the awareness, beneath what's presented? Yes. Beneath, and, and let me just qualify on the unconscious part and the beneath part. Um, I think up until uh, postmodernism and, and now metamodernism, if we accept that term, um, it was unconscious. So when Foucault was writing uh, and making this uh, structure, this was uh, prior to the amount of reflexivity that we have in our lives these days. We right. now understand each other, not each other, we now understand ourselves and our culture as having been derived from a certain soil, certain ground. So that's to say that these folks, these younger folks are not unconscious of these forces. In fact, they're so conscious that uh, if you were to Google metamodernism now, you would see the handful of scholars that are writing and publishing on it. And you would see an even larger group of um, people in the popular, uh, the, the general culture, using the term in, in several different ways, um, but, are, but are looking to this term to understand their felt reality and their sense that something has changed. They're not postmodern, whether they vilify postmodernism or not. They understand that something has shifted, and it occurred around the turn of the millennium, the waning of postmodernism. I'm certainly not the only one to you know, point this out. There's been many scholars, especially literary studies scholars, who sounded the death knell of postmodernism around the turn <laughs> of the century, turn of millennium. Well, you're moving there into the popular culture piece. And I, you know, that's been an area that I want to, that I've looked at for a long time, I'm very interested in popular culture. And I guess when I was reading your dissertation, you know, one thing I said to you earlier is that you're, you know, so often we're we're looking backwards, but what you're doing is actually looking current day, what's happening right now, and and taking a look at the kind of to use forces that are operating in how uh, how we all come to know what we know and think what we think and identify with the particular identities that we identify with, and so we're seeing part of I don't know maybe you can correct me here, but would you say that the popular culture presents current day parts of what's needing to be expressed from the unconscious. Because I mean, th there, there is something fascinating, and I'm thinking now again the, about the treatment that you did with uh, Buffy, the vampire slayer. Kind of what's, what's presented in, in the popular culture for those viewers and fans to be able to relate with and identify with. And maybe I, I'm kind of urging us into monsters there because I'm 
so damn curious about talking about that, but <laughs> any thoughts at all there? And then if you, if you want to go a different direction, that's fine. But I'm, I'm, I'm feeling monstrous. <laughs> well, the monster is a great, uh, kind of a, an, uh, a, a category of artifact for us. Uh, if we want to look at the progression to pluralism, because I think that the, what I call the metamodern monster is one that engages the subjectivity of the monster. The monster becomes a subject, not just an object to be fixed. So in the past, usually a monster, and this is again a brush stroke, but a monster would symbolize something that's either wrong with society, um, it's aberrant, it's scary because it's an unknown uh, and it might pose a threat or a danger in either physical or an existential sense, existential in terms of becoming a monster. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. wow. one is in danger oneself of becoming monstrous. It's a sort of um, you know, lack of control and uh, inability to really have a coherent self. Monsters are all about incoherent. Well, this is so Jekyll and Hyde would be the, the kind of primary storyline here. Mm -hmm. um, Hyde. But, but there's also when you think of um, the vampire or early, there is a, uh, a two dimensionality associated with that figure. You know, there's, there's no personality other than their need to be monstrous. You know, that, that, that there's, there's no, um, there's just no three dimensional space with them. And what you're s saying is that all of a sudden, these figures take on a three-dimensional and and a nuanced personality, which is meaningful for a number of reasons, which we'll talk about. Yes, they take on a, a, a personality and more dimension and more motivations. You could just say they become a more round character. <laughs> but, but importantly, I think really just to underscore the idea that the monster can be the subject, that the monster can be the protagonist. Mm -hmm. uh, the monster can be on your team. If you're like, for example, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there are vampires with whom Buffy teams up to slay other vampires to save the world. Um, so it really complicates the idea. And there was a phrase that, that the monster could be at either end of the pointy stake. So mm -hmm. here's Buffy doing her slaying, she's got some problems of her own. And she confronts her own monstrousness, partially via the um, understanding and friendship of monsters. So it becomes a much more two-way street. And that's why I think Buffy the Vampire Slayer is um, uh, really a, a, a very, it, it's a really clear example of this shift to monsters taking on a metamodern Component. I had so much. Uh, there was so much of this um, this thread when I was I was writing papers when I was younger on interview with a vampire. For this reason, I, I don't. I wasn't conscious of this, but there was such a. It was the collision between these two main characters, uh, kind of old way and new way, where you had this one vampire figure who is not wanting to hurt people, and um, 
and what a shift that was in uh and it certainly it it seeing those things in the popular culture and beginning not even to be conscious of it but when we see those things they're they're working on us as we're working them also and so even to think about that i, I never i guess i never really was aware of how important that particular conflict was between those two figures um, and then of course now we're seeing uh true blood and uh, buffy the vampire slayer and all these other uh where monsters are subjects all of them they're helping to flip the script to say that the monstrous other is you so you did two two real i was laughing a second ago thinking about how how i was imagining somebody listening and uh and kind of taking a head fake going, do they just start talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Like, yeah. why in the hell are they talking about that? <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious for a sec, if you could, what caught your attention about that? I mean, why even look in popular culture? What was your motivation to do that? This is prior to uh, starting to put it together with um, anything mystical. But... Um... Back in the sort of mid 2000s, um, I was I was just kind of a, a general cultural observer, saying to myself, "Something's changing here. What's going on?" And a friend of mine, uh, Greg Denver, with whom I do a lot of writing and uh, thinking about metamodernism, we were casting about for um, a name to put on this. What we felt what seemed to be a new shift um, as we were watching the films and, you know, sort of taking note about fiction writers and vernacular expressions of meaning that were new. Um, so uh, we looked around at sort of synonyms for post-postmodernism and we saw a handful of them and that there was this uh, certain amount of energy coalescing around the term metamodernism. One of the cultural artifacts that we were taking a look at, trying to understand this new um, aesthetic, was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I think one thing I'm really curious here is, just to get your take on, like, I mean, popular culture has always been approached with just the flick of the wrist, and, and certainly in the academy, just to kind of, that's fluff bullshit. Like, it, it you even hear it like popular culture that you know that's a fad but i i've been interested in it because it really does reflect something very important that's going on in the culture and and i i i guess on on a just a personal level i related so much with um with with the work that you put into listening to and paying attention to television shows and what their titles are and so I, I'm even curious about, to, you said some things earlier. You said earlier, one thing, you said you're a youth advocate. So that's, mm -hmm. that's of interest. You know? So you're already positioning yourself to kind of pay attention to what's going on in this kind of youthful popular culture. Mm -hmm. uh, then you've had this fantastic experience when you were 19 and that really radically destabilized, you know, Okay, then we're involved in a cultural shift right now where this is unprecedented and everything's destabilized. I mean, we're in a, a gender identity, uh, 
uh, how we're going to make our money, uh, you know, how we're connecting with each other, you know, on and across borders. There is tons of destabilizing. I mean, it's very rich and important. I think um, it's all needed. And I'm, I'm so optimistic. And there are forces at work that really try to keep things the same. So I, I'm, I'm wondering if we could, if you could help me understand, because it, it is when you, with your background, you have, I mean, existential philosophy, these r r comparative religion, and then all of a sudden you're talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. To some that may be like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> but I get it. I get it. I just want to like, just why? So I guess first, first of all, um, one has to be willing to take popular culture seriously. There have been quite a number of studies done at this point on the influence of popular culture on the viewer and not only just the experience of sitting down and watching a show, these forms of what we might just want to write off as entertainment are much more, um, they're engaging from different vectors of our being because of uh, the ability now to participate as a fan. So they're more participatory. Until you know about fan culture and go behind the scenes and look at all the, um, the, the fan message boards and the amount of time that people spend connecting with people over their show, even writing fan fiction to posit different storylines. It's this is incredibly popular activity for a sizable amount of the viewing population yeah. um, that those of us who are a little bit older might not even know. But at this point, scholars are really recognizing the importance of television shows and the themes and the engagement behind the scenes as a, a very different kind of entertainment gestalt. Um, then it's not your grandmother's TV, let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> so, and you have something like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is, it, it, it enjoys kind of a cult status now. It came on uh, in 1997, and there's still a, a huge body of analysis by scholars and TV critics and fans that continues on over the decades. Um, it's actually one of the most widely analyzed texts in contemporary popular culture. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer has had a uh, an academic journal. Uh, I believe it's a biennial journal uh, called Slayage um, that's existed since the early 2000s, some point in the early 2000s, I believe. Um, and so, you know, you can read hundreds and hundreds of articles on Buffy and also the other Joss Whedon creations that are spinoff series, etc. cetera. Um, and so why? why? Why is it capturing such imagination? That's one of the things that, you know, captures my attention as, as a scholar is to say, why is everyone turning to this show and making so much meaning out of it? Um, I believe it's because of what Buffy did that was different, which is that metamodern monstrous, the treatment of the other. Um, you know, and I've read some other analyses of Buffy fan culture that to provide some evidence for that, that um, uh, when the the fan groups get together, 
some of the themes that they talk about are this sort of humans becoming more tolerant of difference and mm -hmm. humans reflecting monstrous qualities, monsters reflecting human qualities. That's really troubling these boundaries. This is my tie-in back to uh, mysticism, the troubling of boundaries, the self and the other, the good and the evil. Um, when there's that amount of slippage between the two, it opens up space for um, ontological questions, thinking of oneself differently as maybe not a single narrative entity, maybe as, uh, as permeable, more permeable. Yeah, yeah. I think that what you're doing is giving a... Um, to me, what, what this kind of stuff does is it really positions you know, myself and, and anybody, I hope, to, to start to look at what they're attracted to and what kind of, what are they paying attention to and begin to look at it and see what that may be reflecting of what's going on in themselves that they may not be aware of. And I think popular culture does that. It helps us, it provides an outlet for, um, for expressions uh, for realities, for attitudes and ways of being that, interestingly enough, may not be appropriate for the larger culture. It's like a, 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 I don't know. I mean, you think about these transgressive acts that are happening in things like popular culture, and it really gives life to um, to what's what's happening in the very same, the sameness of the culture at large. Popular culture allows for ways of being that are outside of the more typical traditional ways of being to seek expression. And so it's almost a safe thing. You know, you think about back to your grandmother's television, you know, like, uh, I love Lucy, you know, they're, they're sleeping in the same bed. And it's it's beginning to give expression to the things that are going on in the individual, personal, and private lives, but that are not admissible for the larger culture. And so there's a gap in that. And I think there's something really interesting about what you're saying, that all of a sudden, metamodern is really having its way with certain boundaries, um, and things are becoming more permeable. And so there's something about those creative and aesthetic landscapes that allow for us to kind of examine what's going on in ourselves and begin to give expression to a new way of being. I'm wondering how we can position popular culture as something that gives life to something inside of myself and helps me bring it out, but also it suggests something about the culture at large, what's not being expressed. So it seems that uh, what Joss Whedon was going for when he uh, he made Buffy Summers a high school student who isn't uh, particularly intellectually bright, um, but is yet the chosen one, the slayer of her generation, and thus responsible for keeping all the demons in check that are coming out of this uh, Hellmouth that's located below Sunnydale High School. <laughs> so when when he creates the character, he really wanted somebody who was not special from the outside, not a superhero from the outside, because he's making a statement about, uh, at least in my reading, about 
that there's a quiet superhero being percolated in every young person. Yeah. Um, so much of what happens in Buffy has very ordinary people um, becoming, uh, for a moment, extraordinary, but then returning to their quirky ordinariness because, you know, it's not that one eclipses the other, it's that they work together. So that's a really different message. I, I think that's a different rendering. And I think the other different messages that, as I mentioned, that sometimes monsters have the moral or ethical high ground over the human characters for mm -hmm. some time. Or, um, so even like back in the 90s, there was an observation by Victoria Nelson who was already writing about this different trope of vampires who are striving to do good in spite of their inherently evil nature. Um, and that this was a bit of a shift and she called it a, um, uh, to developing a wider and more flexible vocabulary of good and evil. But I feel like even from that point, it's even gone further. And this multivalency of um, questioning the idea of having an inherent nature, um, mm -hmm. but to watch the lines between good and evil blur and watch uh, monsters affiliations with one another or with humans being left quite ambiguous, um, that that seems to um, mitigate humans' fears of monsters on a show like Buffy, because there's this reflexivity and an understanding that the monster is um, has meanings on many levels. So it sounds a bit postmodern to say, well, it's all ambiguous and there's shifting going on. And there's no there there true, but there's a, there's a new normal that gets sort of instantiated by this shifting and ambiguous um, arena that begets a lot of deep theological, philosophical, and ethical discussions on these um, message boards and in the fandom communities. So I do think that's a, a, a marked shift, although it builds on postmodern qualities like ambiguity. Pop culture reflects what we're asking it to reflect, you know, what the, the popular culture requires of our television shows and films based on what sells and what gets audience is what we need it to reflect. So it seems like what we're asking popular culture to reflect right now is a very complex depiction of different shades of belief and disbelief and um, finding ways to negotiate these, um, these differently held realities together, not uh, an either or, but a both and. Well, is that, is that a time where we can, I don't know if there's more treatment of the monster here, but can we jump into Russell Brand? Yeah, let's do. Because that seems like a perfect setup for this, uh, this 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 guy out there doing what he's doing. Yeah, so I mean, I became interested in Russell Brand um, when I was kind of thinking about the fact that here you have so Russell Brand, British comedian, actor, activist, author, former drug addict, uh, transcendental meditation enthusiast, meditator, yoga practitioner, a social activist. Um, and he's, you know, one of the increasingly um, outspoken 
spiritual celebrities to so he's very unapologetic about showcasing his own religious truth claims in both his stage act and his public persona so to me he represents a new kind of public figure i was looking at the things he was saying the claims he was making his use of ancient wisdom traditions from you know the east without specifically naming them um, he's very informed by Vedanta and uh, uh, Tantra, I would say. Um, but he's simultaneously engaging these and uh, social reform uh, agendas and um, also utilizing really outrageously profane secular themes in his comedy material. All the while, somehow, as I write, managing to not be dismissed as a new age woo-woo, I just had to ask myself how he's getting away with all that. <laughs> and how he's getting away with it, it was for me understandable through the lens of metamodernism and the spiritual but not religious. When I took a look at his rhetoric and his, his use of discourse, I noticed that he operates in several different registers, as mentioned, um, that he will and he calls attention to them too if asked um he'll talk about how he will deliver a paragraph that is um very much in the sort of modernist mode of um uh ultimate realities he likes to talk about ultimate realities um but then at the right moment he seems to know when to sort of flip that and to make a penis joke <laughs> <laughs> Tacitly, he can say, you know, I'm here in samsara with the rest of you all, which is to say the ordinary realm of suffering and, you know, desire and greed and sensory, you know, overstimulation, etc. cetera. Uh, I'm here with you and I'm just dealing with it just like you are. Um, however, <laughs> here are some things to think about. Again, with standing in two different realms, at least two, I would say, uh, maybe three if we include the social activism component, and somehow showing that those are not, um, one doesn't have to eclipse the other one, they can exist together. That you can be a socially conscious person who's quite interested in the care of your neighborhood, for example, uh, and you can be a spiritual person who believes that meditation helps and is, is quite out front about suggesting that other people try it. And you can also be a person who makes penis jokes and makes fun of uh, just what it is to be a human being on, in, in a very sort of lascivious kind of way. Uh, and that those things don't have to, again, negate one another um, neither one has to win. It's like they exist mm -hmm. in, par in paradoxical dialectic together. That's what I would base part of his appeal on, is his ability to play all those sides. Now, again, I just want to bring that back to metamodernism to say, to me, that reflects very um, clearly that we don't necessarily have to choose between modernist grand narrative thinking of solving all the world's problems in a progress uh, type of linear, rational uh, type of mode, nor do we need to commit ourselves to deconstructing 
um, the saving of the world through truth with a capital T as postmodernism needed felt uh, we needed to do. Uh, but we can kind of combine these truths. And that's this metamodern idea that um, we can play with all those things at the same time. I don't believe we've had the sort of epistemological luxury of doing that before this post-postmodern time. And that's why I think metamodernism is significant um, for, it's certainly significant for the field of religious studies. Be because it is bringing... I'm, you know, here's my my layperson thought. You know, because it's bringing mystical ideas and realities to the foreground. No, I would say that I'm bringing mystical realities to the foreground via metamodernism. I don't know of anybody else doing that work exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's uh, yeah. I want to try to make this one kind of one clear. In one place I wrote that. Um, you can think of it like uh, metamodernism names the current time period in which there's a lot of reflexivity about where we live, the way we live, what we're motivated by, and the fact that that can be a fluid kind of reality. And sometimes I use the term life as movie because I think that there's a way that, especially um, the younger generations, can view their reality as scenes from a movie. And they can be the director, the actor, the producer, the audience, and flip that around uh, kind of seamlessly. So that might be a little bit hard to understand. But, well, no, um, I mean, I got an idea. I mean, I, I, I wonder all the time. I've got a, a, a two-year-old, and I just wonder what it's like to do something whatever you're doing and your parents are filming you and then immediately watch what you just did. Like, I, I just wonder what that does to consciousness and what that does to our capacity to envision or what that does really to our imagination. Mm -hmm. I think it's significant. And I, I, but that clicks in what you're saying. That's, it's true. She's never known anything different. Mm -hmm. And that's wild. Yeah, that's really wild, and it, and it's a good thing for us to be aware of because we're you know, we're all experimenting on ourselves all the time. But you right. know, the the younger generations, um, I I make the point, you know, that they I think they think that way much more um, naturally than we do because they've grown up with the technologies and that reflexive flipping of the screen back sure. and forth, the screen of my eyes and the screen of me looking at myself. Um, so the metamodern swaps out soteriologies or uh, salvation narratives of how this whole thing's going to work out and what's mm -hmm. going to happen. Swaps soteriologies out for storylines. And storylines are obviously emphasizing personal felt experience um, that can shift. One storyline runs and then ends, and another storyline starts and then finishes. So these storylines can exist as a way of showing that there's no one end point, and there's no necessarily one salvific moment. There's no removed, perfected, immaculate, unified oneness necessarily. I think if there's a I've written that if there's a metamodern savior, it's a savior who 
um, lives in an ordinary way, warts and all kind of um, human with plenty of flaws and foibles and is accountable to life on earth um, as much as any kind of transcendent reality. So um, that's when I say that the soteriologies become storylines and anybody can play this role. Looking from the monstrous and Buffy the Vampire Slayer to this multimodal figure of Russell Brand, um, it kind of seems like what we have is an ability to look through multiple frames and make more normative figures who exceed boundaries. Mm -hmm. So Russell Brand, I believe, is a figure who is excessive in exceeding boundaries from on the spiritual, on the physical, um, he's an excessive figure. And I think that becomes more palatable in the metamodern era because we don't have an either or question. We have a both, more of a both and scenario. If you don't mind, I, I'd like to give a quote uh, from Jerry Saltz, who's an art critic. He wrote this cool article called Sincerity and Irony, Hug It Out. And uh, he's talking about metamodernism and, and metamodern young artists. He says, young artists not only see the distinction between earnestness and detachment as artificial, they grasp that they can be ironic and sincere at the same time. And they are making art from this compound, complex state of mind. So I read that and I translate that to young people, young mystics, young spiritual but not religious seekers, people who are seeing that they don't have to be secular or spiritual, they can be secular and spiritual, and their spirituality can have irony and sincerity, and mm. they're making art or making their lives out of this compound complex state of mind. That's so encouraging. I just think socially that's... Um... I don't know. I just feel such a sense of encouragement for people to really mess up. And to be a mess, to be a bit of a mess, is kind of okay. It's better than being uh, tidily sorted out. It's um, more human, I guess. It's not better, but it's more human to be messy than to be tidily sorted out. I agree. <laughs> if you got to look at my office right now, you would uh, you'd see why I'm agreeing. <laughs> so yeah, I see you. I see you looking up. Why? What are we leaving out? So if, even as much as I talk about metamodernism as a way to understand young people's um, sensibilities um, and to avoid maybe just bashing on what we don't understand very well about their habits and proclivities. I also really do feel it's important to not think of metamodernism as this kind of feel-good sensibility, even though it really is wrapped in, it has a center, I think, um, relationship to one's own felt experience. That sounds very, like it could lend to narcissism. Um, well, or well that, that's right. That's the criticism though, right? That you're... And and that's yeah. the, so it's it, it's the criticism and it's the fear you know because you'll hear people say people say even about the spiritual but not religious community but you've got no external orienting you know uh, dharma 
you know, there's no real path that's established. And that's, there's a concern there because then you could just be projecting all your own desires, you know, hedonism becomes, um, ideal, you know, and, and you're not, you're not, (laughs) this is interesting. You're not subjected to particular boundaries to bump up against and question yourself. I, well, I think that's a really important statement. It's really well put too. Um, because we do look to traditions to provide boundaries, obviously, and things to bump up against. And I think all those concerns stand. They're not resolved in any way by metamodernism or by the spiritual but not religious, far from it. Um, And I think that because today's millennials and plurals and the metamodern sensibility does point toward um, felt experience as being uh, important um, it's important to recognize that felt experiences aren't necessarily always pleasant or warm and fuzzy, are they? They're, there's not, we're not always driven by our hope for world peace or um, conditions that were um, a condition of perfection or perfectedness whatsoever. And I think that any specific kind of ethical equation or qualitative outcome out of spiritual but not religious or metamodernism is really a, a little bit of a wrong-headed way of looking at it. Um, there's a range of eth- ethical conclusions that can come uh, based out of felt experience. Anything could come, right? The felt experience of my own personal doctrines leads me to do certain things, but might lead you to do other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not necessarily a progressive agenda or um anything in particular so but i do think because young people who are influenced by this metamodern shift um are taking their own felt experience seriously there's a sense of engaging the world's social tensions there's a sense of even more responsibility i think for the world it sounds contradictory, but I think it's both an individual, it's an individual sense or an ethos of taking responsibility, but checking back in with the self about what that means. Yeah, and I guess who doesn't, you know, who of us doesn't kind of withhold our felt experience? Um, I mean, what would it be like to actually give life to your felt experience and, and approach that ethically, but not the ethic about what's how you're going to be judged for it. Because what the culture's saying is that, no, you're, you're not only your earnestness, but your fluidity is admissible. Bring it in. That's, that's a, certainly a different um, ethic collectively than, uh, than the easy shoulds and should nots. And this is good and that's bad. And not even you're allowed to bring it in, but you're required. Like you're you're supposed to be here. <laughs> That's a pretty different feeling. Yeah. To say, oh, I I just understand that I deserve a seat at the table. <laughs> what a different world. What a different world, yeah. Maybe we should stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this. 
this is one of those conversations I can't wait to listen back to and I just can't wait to listen back to it and 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 kind of see where my mind goes when I'm a little more of a um passive participant, you know, then uh so thank you so much for arranging the time. Well, thank you. I was uh really delighted to let those thoughts tumble out and I'll be very interested to hear how they come forth as well. Good, me too. <laughs> Thanks so much for inviting me. Of course. This is what it's like when you try To be nice to some guy Nobody else knows exists You get this, an imaginary friend You have to defend against the doubts of the non-believers He likes to play with your toys Must we talk to the non-believing?